This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. All right, folks, so it's our 10th episode this week, and we have a bit of a longer show for you. Uh, We'll start with listener mail, which, as usual, might take some unexpected turns. Uh, We'll end the show uh, with an interview that I had with uh, my friend, musician and writer Mo Troper. Uh, we talk, this is something that I talked about doing a couple weeks ago after that really special MJF promo, and uh, we were able to finally record it for this week. And I do realize it's not quite as timely, but I do think it's still a really meaningful discussion that him and I have. And so that's at the end of the show. Uh, and so we start off talking about. Uh, that MJF program promo uh, specifically in how it relates to uh, Mo's experience as a Jewish man in 2022 um, and that'll be at the end of the show uh, and then him and I'll go into kind of just like a more general kind of friendly conversation uh, that you can stick around and listen to if you'd like and uh, so yes all this and more coming up in a minute <laughs> Welcome in, wrestling fans, and you're listening to The Next Pillar, your AEW podcast, uh, where each and every week we bring you a blend of entertainment and insight inspired by the latest goings-on in all elite wrestling. You can find us at nextpillarawcom If you'd like more information, I'd like to sub- uh, submit something to our mailbag, our listener mailbag, which we'll get to here in a sec. Uh, you can email us at nextpillarew at gmail.com if you don't want us to have your email, which a couple of people asked me why I made that form on the website, and it was because I had a couple people um, tell me that someone m- might want to leave a comment but not leave their email, and it actually has led to some pretty interesting comments, which... By the way, I did verify we're actual people. Um, yeah, I, I do the I do the work, folks. Uh, I'm also on Twitter myself at Blake on Wax, and we are also on Twitter at Next Pillar AEW. And I actually did have someone write in once who basically just like made fun of the fact that the the show Twitter has no followers, but. Um, that's because the only person that I'm following on that Twitter account is Tony Khan, and that's a joke, and I'm not going to ruin that bit, you know, to gain followers. Uh, I mean, we've all seen those guides, um, but that's just my truth when it comes to the Next Pillar Twitter account. Um, you know, who, who else do you need to follow, you know? Uh, I am the world's biggest AEW mark, so yeah, clearly, I'm only going to follow Tony Khan. Who else do you need to follow? Um, and I'll be, I'll be honest. Um, 
some a friend of mine actually asked me like what would you do if you like found out that Tony Khan had like listened to the show or knew about the show and the more I think about it the more I realize that it's really like an either or scenario where either Tony Khan will never listen to the show or Tony Khan has always been listening to the show um, and don't make me explain that, but that's just, that's just what I feel. I feel that in, in my, to my very core. Uh, so on to listener mail. Uh, this is a funny one that I wanted to show. Uh, first off, this is definitely the funniest one that I've gotten. Uh, and that's that someone sent in a screenshot of John Moxley where on Dynamite, uh, he was wearing a tank top for a lot of his match. He would go on to take it off, but at first he came out in the tank top and, uh, someone sent this with the caption of Renee Paquette is scared of Blake's wife, which is really funny of course uh if you didn't hear that particular episode i had my wife on uh just i like to get her thoughts for the pay-per-views um because i think she has some interesting insights sometimes and one of those insights was that she has a really strong attraction to john moxley's chest hair which i'm fine with i mean it's mox i got his book you know he's he's my guy that's fine um but yeah just the idea that uh yeah i mean renee paquette would hear that it'd be like you you think you're gonna go out to the ring wearing that uh is really funny and uh i mean my wife is a 34 double d with perfect pitch you know i mean she's a threat um andrew wrote in asking about ring of honor and that's just would I do a Ring of Honor podcast uh, if Ring of Honor becomes an actual thing? And of course, this person also makes this joke, and you know, Tony Khan is involved. Um, I I definitely would not do a show like this about Ring of Honor. Um, that is for sure. But if Ring of Honor ends up being, um, you know. Like, even if it is just, like, AEW NXT, uh, I'll definitely be talking about it on the show from time to time, and I don't know, I might even, like, maybe uh, one really mean person once wrote in and said that I would be, like, really good as a co-host on someone else's show, uh, which is one of those things that was, like, mean and hurt my feelings because I kind of knew it was true on some level. Um, you know, I'll admit that, but yeah, I was just like, damn, but, uh, yeah, um, with ring of honor, um, no, I will not be doing a, you know, uh, the next pillar, but ring of honor, you know, where my wife sings about bandito and, um, (laughs) you know, Jonathan, we, what song would we write about? I'm trying Jonathan Gresham, uh, like we did a riff on, you know, octopussy, like the theme from octopussy, but about, uh, Jonathan Gresham, you know, that would be really weird. Cause that's one of the bond themes. That's like super serious. Um, which yeah. Okay. So now that I'm talking about this and actually thinking about it, that actually does sound pretty cool. Uh, and that's how this stuff starts. And speaking of things, uh, being started by our listeners, um, I believe it was like last Thursday or Friday morning, uh, you know, I've got my coffee set up. I got a chorizo breakfast burrito from Don Pedro. And believe me, 
And if you're from the Portland area and you don't know about Don Pedro, especially my guy Don Pedro number seven, you guys are missing out. Uh, but in any case, the th- my favorite thing is that about Don Pedro is they put this very detailed sign in the door explaining why they needed to raise the breakfast burrito price by a quarter. Um, I love that place. Anyway, um, and one of you on Twitter uh, sends me this clip from the Ringer Wrestling Show, and don't worry. So I have a one-minute timer here. Uh, just to make sure that things don't get out of hand like they did the other show, you know. I've talked about this Ringer stuff before, but we had someone write in about the Ringer. And, uh, you know, so how do I reconcile these two things of people not wanting the show to be dominated by negativity, yet also wanting the show, uh, you know, to sometimes have some media criticism? This is what I've come up with. It's a new segment called One Minute Burial. Okay, so before we start here, I had to get everything ready. Uh, so basically this clip, and you can see my thoughts, uh, you know, again, at Blake on Wax, because I did weigh in on this after someone uh, sent it to me. Um, the clip that was sent to me uh, was ultimately not what this is about and not that interesting, although I did think it was really funny that it literally started with somebody whining about how there's too much WWE bashing. Uh, but obviously, you know, that got my juices flowing. And so, you know, I pull up the Ringer Wrestling show and I click on the transcript. I just want to be clear. Uh, like, I'm not listening to this fucking garbage like uh at this point anymore it's more of like uh from time to time you dip into the transcripts to see if there's any nonsense going on and uh i can't thank this listener enough because uh i did find some nonsense going on uh i found one of the dumbest things that i've heard on a wrestling podcast and i wanted to play it and also uh not just because you know i'm trying to uh do this one minute burial segment segment but more importantly because the kind of stupid that this is perfectly illustrates something um that i need to say today uh so rather than paraphrase or para quote um you can just give it a listen and i think for that reason alone i'm more excited about the jeff hardy signing because I feel like Jeff Hardy is definitely uh, winding down in his career. And I think there's a lot of untold. So I think if they, you know, obviously I, I've said this for many, many months, I, I really do think AEW could truly benefit for, from some creative writing and uh, somebody who could really craft out some stories, because I think a story with Jeff Hardy truly, you know, truly exercising like all the shit that he's been through in his career this is the best way to, 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 to really finish that story, right? Like Matt Hardy's there, Sting's there, Darby Allen's there. And just those three people alone tell so much of the Jeff Hardy story that you can't really tell in WWE, right? Like you always hear about this man and his demons and yada, yada, yada. But like a Jeff Hardy Sting face-to-face sit down, I'm tuning in to just have them just talk about that. Right. Darby Allen, who, you know, as soon as he came into WWE, uh, AEW, Chris Jericho, 
first person, the first thing he said was he reminds me of a young Jeff Hardy. And obviously you can see the Jeff Hardy influence in, in a lot of things he does. And of course, the reunion of the Hardy boys. I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of story to peel back there, man. And, um, you know, obviously, AEW has no shortage of fantastic wrestlers. I don't think fantastic wrestling is what they need more of. I think what they need more of is very interesting, you know, biting storytelling. Okay. I just got to get, <clears throat> got to get everything going here and go. Yeah. Biting storytelling like Finn Balor at SummerSlam biting storytelling or Biggie's title reign biting storytelling. And again, you know, that's what this is upsetting about these dudes is that they will sit here on a show and put the screws to AEW and of course there are some valid criticisms but this is the same dude who later in the show talks about ricochet winning the intercontinental title being a sign that the wwe is building new stars and i'll bring this up again later but this guy is just so emblematic of a larger problem and that's not get even getting into the fact that on a weekly basis this dude is obviously doing the seymour skinner i'm gonna see how much ass i can kiss today and then i'll see how much ass i can kick next week and break my record to maintain my own sanity. So moving on from all the negativity, uh, you know, at least a bit in tone, um, why I wanted to bring this particular quote to all y'all's attention uh, is that it's so obvious to see, you know, when you actually put these people on the spot and ask them to create something of their own, the idea that they have is, you know, a 25-minute scripted promo with Jeff Hardy, Darby Allen, and Sting. Like, that's who you, that's that's your 25-minute scripted promo. Um, and, you know, I just want to be clear about this. It's like, yeah, obviously at some point in this Jeff Hardy run, I expect that him and Sting, probably fairly soon we'll have some sort of reconciliation about that whole victory road situation. You know, I imagine at some point CM Punk will have a reckoning of sorts uh, with Jeff Hardy about some things that were said or happened in their feud. Those are things that we expect knowing that AEW really values this rich tapestry. That is the history of wrestling. Those are things that we expect, you know, but the idea that, you know, this needs to be like an episode of intervention or, you know, frankly, some show that's much worse, which, by the way, I mean, you look at how stupid this guy is and you just wonder, like, like, wow, you couldn't make it at WWE like your ideas were that bad. But we see here, you know, clearly <laughs> that they were. Um, and yeah, the idea that, oh, you know what? I really wish that they could do is have a you know scripted promo you know with Jeff Hardy and Matt Hardy and all of and Darby Allen and all these people who um the minute you try to tell their story for them it falls apart and that's because of something that's very simple that I was thinking about yesterday uh and that's just that the story of Jeff Hardy that needs to be told the only story is Jeff Hardy's story 
So let me just say that again. The story of Jeff Hardy that needs to be told is Jeff Hardy's story. That is literally the thing that people are wanting to see. And by people, I mean the real fans of the Hardy Boys, but also, I mean, uh, real wrestling fans. You know, I've and I saw quite a few places people talking about, you know, are the Hardys really a thing still or talking about how underwhelming their last WWE runs were, which, gee, wonder why. But that's not what's going on here. Like, this isn't the Hardy Boys doing one more WWE thing with the Hall of Fame thing. Like, this is the Hardy Boys going to AEW and for uh the first time in so long actually getting to be the Hardy Boys again you know there are some valid criticisms to be sure but that this stuff right here is something that Tony Khan understands and you know I think 20 years from now you know when we talk about the successes and failures about AEW in its first 20 years of existence or whatever I think that Tony's understanding of that in regards to storytelling um, will be one of the main reasons you know that AEW if it's proven to be successful which I think it will be um, that is one of the main things that people uh, many of whom will be wrestlers will point to as to you know why they went to AEW or why they stayed in AEW um, and that's really the next test is seeing who stays in AEW. And again, it's like so telling where uh, with these guys, it's like, who are the only AEW wrestlers that they talk about liking? The ones where it's really obvious and they probably even know personally that there's some interest in like MJF and some of Wardlow and some of these other people. Um, and there's something to that. You know, like this guy isn't going on there and talking about Daniel Garcia. You know what I mean? Um, which is a damn shame. That's my main criticism of the Ring of Wrestling show. Where is the Daniel Garcia talk? Thank you. Um, and something, yeah, you know, that I've heard mentioned elsewhere is just the question of, you know, do the Hardy Boys still matter? You know, I, and again, you know, we can revisit some of their last WWE runs or, you know, a valid criticism of, you know, can they still go in the ring? Uh, my hunch is yes. And, you know, you even saw, uh, I don't remember who reported this, but uh, there was a port, there was a report that part of why the WWE did that Jeff Hardy Hail Mary to try to get him to sign up for the, the Hall of Fame uh, is that they feared that the Hardy boys could be revitalized in AEW, which is easy to see you know i know there's been a lot of discussion about you know maybe matt isn't moving too well these days and um you know how jeff looked in his last wwe run but again this is the hardy boys in AEW, and as much as that means and i'll talk about this more later you know to hardy boys fans or to wrestling fans you think about how much that means to matt and jeff hardy uh whether you're a huge hardy boys guy or not uh, two of the most dynamic res wrestlers, wrestling minds of the past 30 years. Yeah, I'll say that. Um, the idea that they are going to approach, 
this AEW run and not totally knock it out of the park, well, I just say, like, a lot of people have bet against Jeff Hardy. I wouldn't be the one to bet against Jeff Hardy, honestly. Uh, And, you know, it's like, you know, this is language that people like that can understand. That Jeff Hardy debut video had 1.2 million views on YouTube in 24 hours. And so the questions of do the Hardy boys still matter? Uh, those questions should be settled by now. Uh, but I wanted to take some time to explain why the Hardy boys are important uh, to me personally and some of my friends, uh, friends I haven't spoken to in a long time. Uh, and more importantly than that, I do want to explore this idea of, you know, just what makes the Hardy boys great. Uh, but first, I need to tell a story. So it was the fall of 1999, and it was the first worst time of my life. My mom and I decided that after years, uh, decades for her, of my dad's verbal and occasionally physical abuse, uh, that it was time for us to leave. So one day, uh, my mom filed for divorce, and we started planning uh, for what we had hoped would be a peaceful new chapter for the both of us. Uh, The problem was that due to a variety of legal reasons and other things that I still don't really understand to this day, uh, we had to stay there for, at that time, uh, we were told possibly might be years. Uh, It ended up being about a year. And you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, you know, if my dad was, you know, comfortable treating us fairly poorly before he knew we were leaving, uh, you can imagine how he started acting uh, the day he got those divorce papers. Um, It was a very difficult time, um, but I did soon realize that I wasn't alone. At the time, my high school was one of the worst in the state. Uh, in fact, literally, when I was attending there, the dropout rate was the highest in the state. And in fact, this might surprise you here in Oregon, uh, one of the highest in on the West Coast at that time. Uh, the school itself was built by an architect who, and this was back in the 70s, uh, thought that students might excel in an environment, this is a quote, free of distractions. So... Um, yeah, this is where this is headed. Yes, my high school had no windows. Every single classroom had no windows. There was a, um, there were like, there was a wall of windows in the cafeteria, and that was it, basically. And so if you're already kind of picturing, you know, this school might look kind of like a prison, um, you should also keep in mind that there was literally a giant metal gate that was raised and lowered uh, each day to allow the Cisco truck to come in and uh, give us our French bread pizza and chocolate milk. Uh, This is something that I remember many of us referring to as the prison door. And, you know, this, again, this was Oregon, obviously. Uh, But, you know, it's like I was talking to my wife about this the other day. Uh, There is just something different about the experience of growing up as a child and maybe having the lights get shut off or maybe having to move where, you know, you can tell that your parents don't really want to. Uh, It's a different kind of childhood, you know, and I'm not saying that my experience was terrible uh, or even really that noteworthy, uh, but there's a particular kind of alienation that comes from growing up poor 
especially in the 1990s. Not especially, but particularly, there's a particular kind of alienation that comes from being poor in the 90s. Uh, And a big part of that is because we were also being told by our parents that we could literally grow up to be anything that we wanted. And... Of course, the classic baby boomer thing is to tell your kids that, but not really explain, you know, how they can go about being what they want to be, let alone explaining the uh, structural barriers of society that many of us have uh, to say nothing of some of the developmental disabilities that many of us were dealing with at the time uh, that seem very obvious looking back on it. so we were told that we could do anything, but wasn't really explained what we should do. And we really weren't warned that uh, actually you can't do anything that you want to do uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, and yeah, you know, I went through the entirety of my high school and indeed until I was, you know, almost 30 before finding out that I had ADHD, uh, likely dyspraxia and some other things. Um and some of you who have made fun of my vocal tics are now feeling bad. Um, but yes, you know, I just, I looked at this progress report just the other day uh, where I had 109 absences. Uh, sophomore year is when I really started skipping classes. Uh, the funny thing about skipping classes is that the more you skip classes, the more you meet people who are also people who skip classes. Um, and so kind of apart from, you know, the circles of friends that I had already had in high school, I also had this kind of crew of people that I would skip class and occasionally hang out with. Uh, you know, I remember one day my friend Marshall uh, stole a case of Pepsi from the student store and all of us would shake up the cans of Pepsi and throw them as hard as we could uh, against the wall by what we called the prison gate. And, you know, thinking about it now. I can still, you know, hear that wet thud that the cans made and remember watching, you know, just these thick brown jets of soda foam bounce, uh, you know, off the beige colored concrete. I should also mention, I think about, you know, some of the people that were there with us that day, uh, like that was the first, uh, trans person that I have been friends with. Uh, you know, I met actually that exact day with the the Pepsi cans, uh, who is now doing some really amazing uh, performance art. Um, and I realize, you know, that their experience or, you know, I think about in this group of kids was one of the seven black kids that went to my school. Um, and, you know, I realized that their experience uh, is a more important and probably more interesting story to be told. Uh, but today my story happens to be the only one that relates to wrestling. Uh, sophomore year was also the year I fell in love with wrestling. Um, you know, I've told this story before about going to Memorial Coliseum for wrestling, but, uh, you know, this, this was different. What happened with me this year was different. Um, you know, I remember sneaking like past my art teacher to, uh, get on his computer and, uh, so that I could start loading WWF dot com uh on his browser uh, it of course took several minutes so you know i would sneak in to start it close the window go to the back of the room then when he left again go to the front of the room open the window and hopefully it had loaded there and i could see what was going on you know with mcfoley and what was on bite this that week um 
the other thing about sophomore year uh, is that it was the year that I met Mark. Um, I met Mark skipping class, obviously. Mark was one of the punk kids at school, um, but he was also the only punk kid that was actually making punk music at that time. Um, and him and I were in the same class, and I had read a poem in that class uh, about the time uh, that my dad hit me in the face. Um, I was in third grade and he hit me in the face. He didn't like how I was decorating the Christmas tree, uh, which, you know, I'm sure my wife is listening to this and thinking, oh, that's why he doesn't like decorating the Christmas tree. Um, but yeah, the reason why I wrote about that uh, in class is that that was the first time that I had remembered feeling scared uh, of my dad um, and so Mark gave me uh, a tape of his that he had recorded and I remember the third song on the first side of that tape was called My Dad and he did this thing where and it was actually really kind of sophisticated looking back on it um, each verse of the song was about him hiding from his dad in a in a different room in the house and I remember thinking at the time you know that this tape was really pretty rough for the most part uh, but I remember thinking at the time you know that he was really on to something uh, with this song and my friendship with Mark who you know honestly I would almost even call him more of an acquaintance uh, to be honest and I have tried to reconnect with him but uh, am just completely unable to find him by the way because I'm sure um, that that's a question that might come up um, but my friendship with Mark led to this very formative moment where I remember our school had a battle of the bands uh, and this band of popular kids you know they could like barely string together this like Green Day cover set and uh, when I come around is one of those by the way is one of those songs where um, if a band only a really bad band can fuck that song up but uh, you know I remember just watching this terrible cover set uh, you know to great applause from my fellow classmates where you know meanwhile by the time it was marked to play his solo electric guitar set um, you know no one was there other than me and you know a few of us that were friends with each other uh by the way that green day cover band I'm joking obviously i think they'd probably be uh like ambient dudes i think that would be the vibe with that um one thing about mark though is that at that time uh mark was not one of my wrestling buddies um but i do remember him uh coming to watch the 2000 royal rumble at my house uh this was back in the day um you know of cable and pay-per-view uh crazy how you know far we've gone um mark you know interestingly enough was not one of my wrestling buddies uh but i remember him coming to watch the 2000 royal rumble at my house uh i think which think about that as your first wrestling event by the way um that yeah do you got the hardys and the dudleys and the Cactus Jack Triple H and the Rumble very good anyway um and and that's why you know it's like my wife 
sometimes ask me like how are you having parties where people were coming over and watching wrestling and it's like well that's because like even someone that you usually wouldn't watch wrestling loved watching wrestling during this time it's just one of those things that's hard to explain and hopefully we can go back there again uh i hope so uh anyway um this was mark's first wrestling event that he had seen and uh, I remember this very vividly um, you know as the Hardy Boys come out um, I remember him saying you know oh I had no idea you know that wrestlers could be like this you know and look like me is what he said um, obviously I, I should have mentioned this Mark was very much like a punk looking guy with the dyed hair and the um, the stick and pokes and the uh, just everything you would expect um, and so look you know I am not the world's like biggest Hardy Boys fan uh, but you know I was emotional seeing Jeff Hardy you know uh, dance on that entrance ramp which by the way of course he danced on the entrance ramp of course he did. That's what makes pro wrestling fun is what Jeff Hardy dancing on the entrance ramp as his brother's getting his ass kicked. Like, if you don't like that, like, you don't like wrestling. That's is that's just how it is. Uh, but yes, um, you know, I'm not the world's biggest Hardy Boys fan, but it's like, look, you know, for me, it's like, you know, I think about CM Punk being gone for seven years and it really was like for seven years the bat signal was up and no one was getting it uh and i know you know i'm a 38 year old man with two kids uh but that little third grade boy is still somewhere deep inside me you know he went somewhere deep inside me um as my dad got crazier and uh that little boy is still somewhere inside me and so you know when i get a text message you know from my friends who um one of my friends you know i haven't talked to in a very long time who you know just is like oh i was looking on facebook that you're doing this wrestling podcast i just watched aw for the first time i haven't watched wrestling you know since we were in high school but i saw that you know jeff hardy had been on um th that kind of connection you know th that is the kind of thing that gives you you know 1.2 million youtube views in a day for that hardy's debut that's the kind of thing that you know makes my friend like that reach out um it's what made that's what has made you know so many other friends of mine who i know love the hardys where we've engaged in conversation and all of us are so ready for uh to in 2022 in AEW, uh you know see the hardys be the hardys again um and it's those kind of connections that are things that, uh, you know, the WWE brains of the world will never understand. The story of Jeff Hardy that people really care about isn't the suspensions. It's the comebacks. It's not about what happened at Victory Road. Like, we don't need to have a... I mean, obviously, Sting and Jeff Hardy talking on TV about Victory Road, that's great TV. But is that great pro wrestling?
because that's what this is all about. So again, the story of Jeff Hardy that needs to be told is Jeff Hardy's story. And that's because Jeff Hardy's story is our story. So, uh, we're back to listener mail. That's right. All that stuff you just heard was just a part of listener mail. It's exactly like that whole, you know, House of Black, Knights of the Black Throne situation. I'm very dynamic. The show is very dynamic, people. You know, just sleep sleep, by, sleep at your own peril, you know? Um, so, we're back to listener mail. And I saved the best for last here. Uh, we have uh, VJ uh, emailing in about a question about production stuff. And I just, I saved this for last because uh, VJ is our current um, leader among uh, uh, listeners who have written into the show and is among, you know, the listeners that I've talked to who uh, I met and interacted with from doing this show which um is just one of those really cool things that can happen in doing something like this and so vj if you're comfortable uh feel free to email me your address and something i'll announce right now is that we are working on a a show t-shirt and so if you send me your address i hope to have these ready by uh you know the summer so, you know if you need to slim down to to you know you you have a goal in mind like oh you know, I want to be a medium in the summer. So, you know, I'll start thinking about that. You know, that's, here's some incentive. Um, and you know, you, you want to fight, just order that XL. Yeah. Right on. You know, just you are who you, you props, you know? And while we're on the subject, I did want to talk a little bit about, uh, hello fresh. Yeah, that's right. Hello fresh. Um, uh, hello fresh. So just what is HelloFresh? You're probably asking to yourself. Uh, well, with HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. You know, HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal of the same quality, and you can save on average over $65 per month when you order HelloFresh instead of grocery shopping. 
that's more money to put towards those other 2022 goals of yours. Uh, maybe you're wanting to go see New Edition and Jodeci and Charlie Wilson in Oakland this weekend, like me. Uh, well, HelloFresh also offers 50 menu and market items to choose from each and every week, including veggie for the college folk, calorie smart for the... Uh, and then family friendly and gourmet options providing plenty of variety recipes like hibachi sweet soy bavette steak and shrimp bring restaurant quality meals right to your kitchen while their right cheddar wonder burgers make it easier than ever to skip the takeouts so you know my personal experience with HelloFresh has been just nothing short of great you know I love the colors on the packaging I love the fonts that they use, you know, especially in the packaging. And I've always really just enjoyed it. Uh, you know, they, the word fresh is in the name, but it is just very fresh each and every time I open those boxes. Uh, so if you want to be a part of HelloFresh, you can go to hellofresh.com slash VOW16 and use VOW16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. I'm going to do that. Okay, so back to VJ though. Um I uh yeah, am just immensely appreciative of and VJ's not the only one. We have at this point we have uh a few, you know, that that have messaged every week and uh and many others who just uh message in from time to time and uh, thank you. Uh, or maybe less pleasant. But uh so VJ, uh, his question again, you know, uh, is very insightful. Um, I have been noticing on average that the production has been going downwards uh, steadily for a while. Personally, I love the New Japan style of filming with more limited camera cuts. AEW has become a lot more WWE-esque with the constant camera cuts, although not as bad as WWE, I think he's saying. Um, I wish we could linger on moments, and uh, really, AEW has only been dimming certain lights more in the arena so that the audience isn't as visible. I wouldn't mind seeing some empty seats if it meant we could see some fans uh, jumping up down and going nuts over every entrance. Uh, have you noticed these changes? And overall, how do you feel about the production of the show? This is a uh, fantastic uh, question and something that I would love to do a longer uh, segment about is just the production of AEW, AEW as a production. Um uh, both of those things, which are actually kind of separate now that I think about, um, but could be had in one discussion. Um, but yeah, AEW's production values. Uh, I have so much to say, you know, so much of why. Let me tell you, folks. You know, on a Monday night. What am I what am I doing? Like, you think I'm sitting in the t sitting by the TV watching three hours of Monday Night Raw, seeing if Cody Rhodes is going to show up. Even though I'm super interested to see if Cody Rhodes show up, it's just I saw so many of you uh, just pulling your hair out on Twitter, being like, "Oh, this is terrible! This is terrible!" And then Cody didn't even show. It's like, what did you think was gonna happen? <laughs> you know? And even if Cody Rhodes did show up, it probably would have been shitty anyway. So, 
Uh, so yeah, no, I was uh, I was making some uh, making some uh, some soup, some cow soy, and uh, you know, relaxing with a, a nice book. And yeah, no, I was not watching three hours of Monday Night Raw. And a big re- a big part of that is just because of their production values, where it's like VJ is saying with the jump cuts, which is something that um, you know has been driving people crazy for for how long now you know that's like i do remember back you know in the high school days people were complaining about that stuff on the internet then you know um and it does stand in such a stark contrast to you know like he's saying um just like the way that a lot of other um a lot of other companies have shot and produced wrestling shows. A kind of philosophy which is, oh, okay, so we need graphics for a wrestling show. We got to make sure that they look like graphics for a wrestling show. Um, where sometimes taking a different approach, you know, can be really helpful for people. Um, or not helpful for people. It can be really effective is what I'm trying to say. Um I'm just in a good mood today. I don't know. Um, well, I'll tell you folks, I got my tax tax return today. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm also should mention just that I'm going to Oakland this weekend. Uh, it's my first time going on a plane since 2008 and I'm going to see new edition and Jodeci and Charlie Wilson. So, um, new edition has been one of my favorite groups for years. And, uh, very important to me and I really did not ever think I would get to see them and so I'm just pretty excited about it um but this isn't a music show (laughs) definitely not and um so we'll move on but yes with AEW's production values uh yes the camera cuts yeah often bother me they also do seem to and this is something that other people have talked about more than me um they also seem to uh really miss important parts of matches sometimes um or you know expose the wrestler spots even sometimes i've seen a couple times um but i feel like with that you know uh it is a relatively young company and uh you think about just the head start when it comes to production values that wwe has had which yeah by the way i actually didn't really flesh this out much i cannot stand just just how many graphics like the graphic overlays i guess uh that is just again you know it's just it it doesn't feel like pro wrestling to me and you know if that's pro wrestling to you that's cool it's just when i turn on a wrestling show like i really am not looking at to see like you know a giant sculpture of roman reigns face you know what i mean in 3d modeling like the head of mario 64 or whatever that you pull on the nose and stuff um and the stuff with that that just really really bothers me is just the stuff that takes you out of the experience of you know i want to watch some pro wrestling right now and of course wwe does that by design as often as they can um and then they wonder you know why their audience is not connecting to really any of their stars outside of you know wrestlers who have such charisma that they're able to break through you know regardless if the story is shit or not um shout out to biggie and bianca belair uh but especially biggie for obvious reasons um 
And so, yeah, you know, you look at the, the fast cuts with the cameras, you look at the graphics, which like, I've never felt that AEW has a like signature graphical look like it always just seems like their graphics are trying to look like, Oh, we need graphics that look like UFC. Oh, we need graphic like, um, and I really feel like they have an opportunity to do something pretty cool if they could actually uh, have a design vision that's just a lot different uh, than a traditional wrestling product. And I really think that, um, you know, again, you know, when we're talking about this demo that they're pursuing, um, yeah, you know, that they could be on the cutting edge of something like that. And it might make more of a difference than you think. Um, in regards to lighting, that is interesting. I, the thought of, you know, is it better to have dim lights and you don't realize that a show isn't sold out or, you know, is it better to have the lights up so that you can see the crowd? But like, then, you know, if it's not sold out, then you see all the empty seats. Um, personally for me, seeing empty seats takes me out of an experience a lot more than not being able to see the crowd. Um, because, you know, not being able to see the crowd, I actually remember the first time that I saw them do that on a broadcast, uh, you know, my nerdy ass thought it was cool. Cause I thought it was like theater. Um, seriously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm married, you know, you makes you wonder, don't it? Um, yeah, I was like, Oh, this is cool. This is like theater, you know? Um, because that's, that is how I relate to wrestling a lot of the time, especially when we're talking about matters of production. Um, and, uh, he also mentions just by the way, um, that, uh, just the extent of Jim Ross and his, just this, this arc of like, Oh yeah, it's Jim Ross. And then an hour later, like, and yeah, uh, I do think it might be worth them looking into, you know, like let's use uh good old JR for, you know, uh, these important matches that he's invested in that we, you know, can prep him for. Um, cause he does seem out of touch with the product is something I meant to mention last week, but forgot to say is that he seems really out of touch with the product. And, um, another thing that I forgot to mention in that discussion the other week, uh, is that I love Tony Schiavone and think he, he does an amazing job, especially in the in-ring interviews, but also as a commentator. That's another thing that uh, um, we had a listener comment about this week is just uh, someone was taking me to task for not mentioning Tony Schiavone or they thought that I didn't like Tony Schiavone is what happened, but they thought that because I didn't mention him. And so I wasn't about to let that stand. Cause after all, who knows, Tony Khan might be listening. He might tell him, uh, and just imagine, just imagine how you would feel if you hurt Tony Schiavone's feelings. I mean, really? Um, so yeah, no, I appreciate, uh, VJ. Thanks for writing in and yeah, please send me your address, uh, and I will send you a t-shirt, uh, when we have them again, shooting for the summer people. Um, so we finally reached, um, our dynamite preview, uh, and these continue to get smaller each week, but I'm never going to get rid of them 
Uh, but if you do find yourself, I did have one listener or it was actually, it was actually a couple, I think, um, just that mentioned that they love that it comes out on Wednesday. Cause that's like a fresh preview of dynamite. Um, but the issue that I've run into, of course, is that sometimes Tony Khan like announces the card like 30 minutes before the show. And so it's like, yeah, like if it's on Wednesday and I'm doing a preview, like I've, I've, I've at least gotten most things or at least the big things, but um, then again, there does end up being a match that pops up last minute that I wished I had talked to, uh, on the show. Uh, and also just that I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from, uh, you know, listeners and, and other folks uh, who I respect who really like the direction of the show in terms of like, again, pulling that lens back and using wrestling as a canvas to talk about something else even. Um and that seems more interesting for me to pursue rather than, uh, you know, being another show, you know, that's that's more or less, you know, in the week to week minutia of things, which, again, can also be really interesting and engaging, uh, depending on how you go about it. But, yeah, I, you know, just in in closing, uh, I really do value the Dynamite preview and it will still be a part of the show, but it will more and more um be a segment like this that's kind of just a like a, it's kind of a it's kind of a breeze you know it's a light breeze it's a dynamite preview breeze just blowing over you um yeah you know it is it's like a diffuser it's a dynamite preview um but yeah you know so tonight's edition of dynamite and you know you do wonder um if chris jericho will be there and i'm sure he will uh, and will the Jericho Appreciation Society be there as well? I think they will. And uh, it does make you wonder, though, doesn't it? Just this Jericho Appreciation Society, uh, if they had an entrance theme, you know, wh- what do you think that might sound like? In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're you you know what I mean? Like you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, ah, hey, look at some random cards, or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards. It sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing, you know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded 
by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. So, you know, looking at this, I'm realizing that this is actually going to be a pretty crazy addition to Dynamite, and I maybe should have put a little more thought into the preview. Uh, But, you know, the highlight, of course, uh, is the cage match. Thunder Rosa, Brick Baker. Um, It's going to be interesting if they decide to put the title on Rosa. Just what was the point of that one-on-one match at the pay-per-view? You really do wonder... I feel like in the women's division in particular, there seems to be a lack of like fatal four-way, six-way situation. Um, what I would love to see more of that I really miss too, this is a general thing, is just elimination mashes, like having a triple threat, but it being elimination. Um, again, you know, there's there's plenty of deserving women you know, that deserve these kind of opportunities to wrestle on pay-per-views. And if they were going to, it's one of those things where either way, you know, whether they have Brit retain or not, I really don't understand what was the point of that pay-per-view match just being a straight up singles match between the two of them. Um, again, if they were planning on continuing it, if they were planning on ending it there one way or another, that makes sense but uh to do it and then continue it again it's just a it's a little confusing i'm not really sure where they're going with it um also on deck for tonight's dynamite is uh wardlow and scorpio sky um which 
is another match with a lot of intrigue that will kind of tip their hands, so to speak, about some long-term storylines. Uh, you know, one of those being, um, you know, the you assume that MJF will be a part of this match in some way, shape, or form. And uh, just the other storyline of, uh, you know, this Ty Conti, um, Sammy versus Paige Van Zant, Scorpio Sky feud, which, you know, if all reports are accurate and that was going to be Cody Rhodes and Brandy Rhodes in that position, uh, Sammy and Ty Conti, like, talk about an upgrade uh, where it's now like, I'm dying to see this feud, honestly. Uh, and I hope it really gives Sammy to sink his teeth, something to sink his teeth into. We've really seen him break through recently. Um, I really feel like that, you know, especially that, uh, you know, segment with him, um, you know, in the latter match, like having to get the strength to go back. Uh, I just feel like we've never really seen that, uh, strong emotional side of Sammy before. And I really feel like, you know, you involve his, you know, Ty Conti. And uh, I feel like this has, you know, the potential to be something where uh, Sammy can get out from behind the cue cards, so to speak. And, uh, you know, show us that in addition to becoming one of the best four pillars in the ring, uh, he can do it on the stick as well. Uh, and I know he can do it and I would love to see it. Uh, it, I just, I, I, this is just, and I'm not saying, you know, that this feud is going to be anything more than just a nice entertaining feud, but it's just one of those things that has the potential to be again, you know, just very charming and entertaining. Um, also on tonight's episode of dynamites, um, I think, um, you know, just as important as anything in the show is, uh, or I mean, when you look at last week's show, uh, just important as what was on the show was, uh, who wasn't on the show. And that's of course, CM Punk and MJF. And I think I expect we'll, we'll hear from both of them tonight and it'll be interesting to see, um, what, what they move on to and what's next for, uh, both MJF and CM Punk and just to see, you know, how they've transformed, uh, you know, from being in this feud. Um, I expect that, you know, that dog match in particular uh, may down the line become, you know, a turning point uh, for either of them. Um, and hopefully for the better, you know, I feel uh, now that we've seen this different side of each of them during this feud, you know, it's like you can't wait to see that side, uh, you know, against all the other talent that AEW has to offer. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I look forward to that. And uh, I, as I was saying earlier, you know, um, I realize these Dynamite previews have kind of become, um, they've kind of become... Um, Underrated, you know, in a similar way as a as a Ricky Starks or a Powerhouse Hobbs, you know, uh, the, the dynamite preview languishes, uh, despite always being here for us, you know. Let's be honest, and uh, despite all the potential it has, uh, but yeah, I, 
Uh, I do feel bad the Dynamite preview is decreasing, but as I've said, uh, from time to time, not every week, but from time to time, I would really like to use this show as a canvas to uh, talk about some things or, you know, rather to use wrestling um, as a canvas to talk about, well, here's where I'm tripped up because... (laughs) If if something's a canvas, you're not going to use it to talk. I mean, I guess you're. It's like a, you know, you like your, you know, you've got a bar chart on it or something. Um, but yeah, um, I would like to use wrestling as an opportunity to uh, talk about some other things. And so you're about to hear my friend uh, Mo Troper come on and talk a little bit. Um. He is a, uh, a a Jewish artist in 2022, just like MJF. And when I saw that MJF promo, um, he was the first person that I thought of. And it turns out I wasn't alone. It turns out a lot of people sent him that promo. And so I wanted to get his thoughts on it and use that as an opportunity to talk about uh, what it's like for him to be a uh, you know Jewish artist in uh 2022 it's a unique experience and i just wanted to give him an opportunity to talk about this uh so a couple things i will mention before this discussion starts is that the audio quality is a little weird uh he thinks he sounds like he's in a cave so if that helps you visualize things uh by all means um it does sound a little bit here on the oregon coast you know we have uh, quite a bit of coastal caves. It's, it has that vibe. I can't lie, uh, which I enjoy. And um, I, yeah. So for my listeners, you know, who aren't familiar, um, Mo Troper, uh, in my opinion, is the CM Punk of Power Pop. His pipe bomb uh, being a ranked list power pop musicians uh that angered uh man children across the globe uh the man has had his writing published everywhere from noisy to the believer as an artist his music has been covered on pitchfork npr noisy paste magazine consequence of sound and even on stereo gum last year uh with um yeah with great celebration (laughs) he's produced for acts like uh, Floating Room, which is the project of Maya Stoner, one of uh, really only two or three people I've worked with who I actually think are, uh, when it comes to art, uh, completely genius. Um, and uh, they actually just did a massive tour with Citizen and Drug Church. Uh, they probably came to a town near you and maybe you saw them. Uh, he's produced records including uh, just a fantastic uh, recent effort by the band Alkapops, uh, if you like Guided by Voices. And uh, if you like, if you want to hear a mix of Guided by Voices and Stefan Merritt, um, the songs of Leland Brell will appeal to you. Um, he also has produced uh, a record for Brett Irish, who my listeners are familiar with. Um, he is also... Uh, he is no stranger to any of my friends and no stranger to his neighborhood Spud Monkeys location. It's Mo Troper. And before I bring him on here, 
I did want to introduce him also just by playing uh, some of his music. And uh, since we had, uh, you know, a proposed wrestling theme earlier in the show, um, I thought about, you know, which of Mo's songs is most like a wrestling entrance music theme. And um, this song, uh, Jazz from Australia, which has also just been in my mind because the Jericho Appreciation Society, people are just calling it Jazz now. Uh, yeah, is my pick for that. So before this discussion starts, and you can envision him, you know, maybe coming out to the ring as this is blasting. Um, and yeah, we'll have some links in the description in case you want to check out more. And uh, yeah, again, this is a discussion uh, with Mo Troper. my friends and certainly no stranger to his neighborhood spud monkeys location it's mo troper and i say that i actually don't even know if spud monkeys is still open yeah i really hope they are because like can you imagine like it's like montage brunch box like real cheese grill <laughs> but like can you imagine if like the two spud monkeys survived uh, yeah that would be uh, I, I guess I would be uh, shocked if they were able to weather the pandemic. But, I mean, I think that the flag and banner store by Lloyd Center is still open. That's sick. So you never know. Did you know that I got my wedding ring at Lloyd Center? 
Uh, I don't think I did. Yeah, at like one of those super weird jewelry, like cheap jewelry stores. Like I got it for five dollars. <laughs> was it like a kiosk or was it uh, in like a actual jeweler in the inside the mall? It's one of the inside mall ones. Yeah. Oh, like cool. Old, yeah, I forget what it's called, but it's the place that has all the weird gold and stuff. Go um, oh, crazy. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, too, I I always like the distinction that Spud Monkeys had where they put the possessive on it, you know? Yes. It's, like, it, like yeah. it wasn't Spud Monkeys, it's, you know, belonging to a Spud Monkey. Right, which is like a mistake that I feel like you make a lot as a kid, like Red Robins yes. or like Chuck E. Cheese's. Right. Uh, so, yeah, they really got ahead of that of that one. Right. Or my, my dad would just do that, you know, in his 50s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I told you that story about how he really wanted to make... You're familiar with the old spaghetti factory, of course. Of course. Um, he really wanted to make the, like, brown butter with mazithra cheese thing. Okay. But, of course, being my dad, he tells me, he's like, so I went to New Seasons and I asked everybody there where the risethro cheese was and it was crazy and like knowing my dad he was like extremely angry to like all of these people in the store um, so I would have liked to be a fly on the wall about that but on to a uh, the, the topic the, at hand the serious topic uh, Mo the reason why I wanted to have you on the show today uh, it's just that I feel like you're uniquely qualified to speak to some of the underlying issues. They really made this MJF promo uh, the talk of the industry, you know, for the for a week. And um, for me, you know, it really made it something that kind of like transcends uh, wrestling. Um, I guess, you know, a commonality between like wrestling and popular music is just that there aren't many cases of successful artists or performers in either medium, really. Uh, that make being Jewish like part of their public identity. Um, like, you know, they may mention being Jewish on occasion, but it's like a much right. different thing to have it be like a central, like public part of what you're doing. Not to say that you've done that a ton, um, but, you know, for, for those listening, um, you had an awesome T-shirt. What was that last year? Uh, yeah. That Jewish American rock thing, which I thought was very cool. You have a song on the upcoming Motroper, Motroper 5 uh, record, you know, that references it. Um, so I guess I just wanted to have you on um, just to kind of like give you a space to talk about that. Because I know that, uh, you know, being Jewish is one of those things where there's just not as many spaces to talk about it as there are um, various other identities. And I should also mention that I'm certainly not trying to. Uh, detract from any other matter at hand or say that like uh, you know the plight of you know being Jewish in 2022 is somehow you know worse than something else you you understand right. what I'm saying uh, yeah no for sure but I did want you to just give you an opportunity to kind of uh, sound off on this so just I guess to be more specific what was your reaction just like because I sent you that promo because I really did want your your take on it um, what was your reaction to watching that yeah, I. Uh, you sent it to me, and I had seen some other people, um, like sort of in in music spheres, talking about it. Um, so I, I do think that there was something about it that was kind of like 
uh, like you're saying, it sort of like transcended the medium. Uh, it was like something that a lot of people were talking about, and there were a couple people that, um, aside from you, who tried to get me to watch it. So, but it actually took me a second to watch it, um, and I, yeah, I guess I really wasn't expecting that. Um, it was really pretty emotional. I would say that my reaction, I had a pretty emotional reaction to it. I think that like uh, sort of another important point is that like it's it's specifically there is a lack of um, like secular Jewry I would say in popular culture with like pop music and, and, and maybe wrestling. I don't know as much um, about that but I'd assume that's the case. Um, so it's like, you know, when you have a artist who is really kind of publicly Jewish, it's usually like modest Yahoo or something, you know, where it's like right. very, like they're kind of like an Orthodox Jew probably. And there's a very strong religious element to it. So I think that, um, that promo kind of, you know, there wasn't really anything like, uh, religious about it. It was like, he, he was, um, really just sort of referring to like the uh uh like ethno-national uh aspect of judaism i would say which i think right. made it really powerful to someone like me who has never really identified with the religious part of judaism you know sure um uh so you know back to that issue of you know choosing to make you know being jewish at least more of a part of your public identity uh, than maybe it was, you know, when you and I first met and we're doing yeah. stuff together. Um, what what went into your decision? Or you know, I, I know a lot of times you sometimes will, um, like one of the re- one of the things that I actually really miss working about you is just that uh, you will sometimes just like turn on a dime on certain things, um, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you're laughing, but like I, for me, uh, so much of the difficulty that I have in life in general is decision paralysis, and so it's like kind of one of those things where, like, I feel like if I could just be in your brain for a day, I could like mm-hmm. sort out uh, any number of things. Um, but yeah, what? So sorry, I kind of. Uh, no, no, that's interesting. Yeah, I went off the, the plot a little bit, but. Um, yeah, what went into that, or did anything go into that, I guess? No, I think it's been, like, a pretty uh, unconscious decision. Um, like, I think when you first talked to me about this or mentioned wanting to have a conversation about this, it wasn't even really, like, clear to me that that was, like, a new thing. Um, I mean, I think that that shirt was, you know, it's like I had to, like figure out what that meant in Yiddish and like uh, my friend who made the shirt actually had to like he like hand drew um, so I guess uh, I'll explain it a little more uh, for the the benefit of your listeners but it's a the shirt is like a Simpsons reference so it's like Krusty the Clown when he's young and like there's there's that episode where Krusty talks about like how he grew up in the Lower East Side of Springfield, <laughs> uh, and his dad is like a rabbi who's like a total hard ass and doesn't want him to pursue uh, a career as a clown because he, he thinks it'll like bring disgrace to their family. Um, and so the shirt is like an image of uh, young Krusty 
and it says uh, Jewish American rock music from Portland, Oregon. And then there's a Yiddish translation of that at the bottom of the shirt. And uh, my friend actually couldn't find Hebrew or Yiddish. He couldn't find like a complete alphabet um, in the Simpsons font, which he thought was really weird because like you can find pretty much every other language. So he had to like hand draw the Yiddish type in the Simpsons style, which is like incredible from a design perspective. Uh, um, But uh, I don't remember. Why did I start talking about that? Uh, I think it was good, and I'll I'll have a link, you know, when they oh, sent out the spot okay. stuff, so totally. you can see it. Um, but I, I, you were very elo- more eloquent in explaining that than I would have been. So I, I'm glad. You be, totally, be, sure. you were asking. Um, yeah, so I don't I don't think that there was a decision. I mean, I think it was just like I had an idea for a, a shirt that um, seemed kind of like novel. To me, um, I can't really think of like any other bands that have had a shirt like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. exactly why I wanted to have you on to talk about it. Sure. Uh, just because um, MJF has like very pointedly uh, done the same kind of thing uh, in terms of just like I, I get you know just having that public um, persona of. You know, having that be a part of, you know, the public sphere, your public identity. Right. Um, yeah. And in, in a medium where um, I've talked to you about, about this a little bit, but of course, you know, wrestling is full of ethnic stereotypes. For um, sure. And the way that MJF has really subverted uh, that stereotype in a lot of ways. Um, particularly, uh, I actually, I didn't send you this video, uh, but there's a, there's a video package that folks will remember where, um, it's very much like the opposite side of the coin of that promo that he gave, which basically like talks about how badass he was in high school. And then just right in the middle of the video, you know, it's like, you've never had Ben's matzo ball soup in downtown, <laughs> like Long Island. So it's like he also has the, the like you know, just like you're saying, like on the Lower East Side of Springfield, like it, right. it's also like a very, um, you know, overt reference to that. Um, I guess part of why this whole topic is interesting to me uh, is just that we haven't seen the same sort of embrace or like I always hesitate to use this word, but like allyship sure. of you know Jewish communities in the same way. That we've seen popular culture, you know, support other communities. Um, so why do you think that is? And I guess to like widen the scope there, uh, you know, is there anything central to your experience as like a Jewish American writer and musician, you know, uh, that you wish like more people knew about? Um, yeah, I guess it's a good question. Yeah, Jewish American writers and musicians aren't a lot of those. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's your experience, you know. I, yeah, I totally. To you, uh, a, a thing because I do. Um, you like MJF? Sure. I've experienced uh, some adversity because no, t- definitely. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that um, you know, I grew up in Portland, and so there's not really like a strong Jewish cultural presence here. Um, it, I think there, there have only been like two or three Jewish delis at a time. Uh, there's like a really kind of concentrated, uh, like 
Jewish American community in, in certain parts of the city, but it's not the same as it is right. like in LA or New York or pretty much any other major city um, in America. It's like just very non-Jewish. And so I think that um, growing up here, I really denied uh, that part of myself for a long time. Um, and like, I really didn't know anybody else who was Jewish. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely like experienced a lot of, I guess you would call them microaggressions in Portland that I probably would not have experienced in a place like LA had I gone to high school there, you know, like people asking to like touch my hair and sort of like saying all these things that like they obviously didn't know were inappropriate. Like, I don't think any of these high schoolers were actually bigots or anything, but it's just like when you're not around like a, a group of people, um, you just like, you really do um, start acting like everything is really exotic, you know? Sort of. <laughs> I, think, I think that that's like how I felt a lot of times. Um, like, oh, why is your skin yellow? Like, are you jaundiced? You know, like just like kind of stuff like that. And it's totally. like, oh, well, you know, I just have like kind of a Mediterranean uh, complexion, you know? It's like, so. Um, I think at a certain point when I was like high school age, I was like, I'm just not going to talk about this um, because it's like more trouble than it's worth. And I don't know anybody else who who um, is like my age and um, not really religious, but Jewish and identifies with this. So I think I just sort of like repressed it for a long time, which is one of the, another reason why I think that promo was so powerful and like cathartic you know so so i think that i think there's an element of like catharsis to owning that now in my early 30s you know or late 20s last year um and uh yeah um i think that there hasn't really been like um i mean i think another uh cities in America and maybe like other parts of the world, like in Europe and stuff, there is more allyship. But yeah, I think when there are like, you know, incidents of anti-Semitic violence or whatever in America, it really kind of um, doesn't make headlines. Um, and there are not a lot exactly. of people. The people I talk to about it are usually like um, other Jews, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you why. I think like... Um, I don't know, like Freud has this idea, Freud is kind of the person who like, um, he has a book about jokes. Uh, I don't know, do you know that book? I've heard of it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, on jokes and their relation to the unconscious. So like, he was, I think the first person to describe like the Jewish consciousness and the Jewish sense of humor, which is pretty interesting because he was, as far as I know, a secular Jew. Um, and like uh, one thing that I'm pretty sure he talks about is like Jews are like sort of like the reason self-deprecating humor is like a characteristic of the Jewish sense of humor, the Jewish consciousness is because they're like the chosen people who are simultaneously um, like in exile perpetually. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that that's just like a really good point. And so I think that a lot of times like you do kind of need to um like you can't really be not jewish and embody uh like the 
the Jewish consciousness or that kind of like distinct uh, feeling of misery, I feel like. And I mean, that's the same with like every everyone, you know, but um, I just feel like people don't really know like what it's like to be Jewish, like sort of the, um, they just like assume it's a religious, a religious preference, you know, and I guess like in some rare cases it is when people make the insane decision to convert, but that's like my, you know, that's you like know. my, um, God, I, I, it's like a second cousin or something like that. I yeah. have where it's like, it's my, it's my grandpa's sister's kid, whatever relation that is to me. Yeah. But yeah, he converted to Judaism for what he said. What he told my grandpa was for business reasons. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and he did make a Jewish woman, you know. It's okay, sure. Like, bought a bunch of business cards to the synagogue or whatever. But yeah, he. Um, uh, that was his reason, you know. And of course, my yeah. grandpa was always like one of the most liberal people, you know, at his church that he went to. Yeah. There's this famous story where the Republican Party called him to, like, do a, a survey. And they're like, what do you think about George W. Bush? And this was when the pastor was over doing a visit. And uh, my grandpa was like, I think George W. Bush is the biggest jackass since Ronald Reagan. And then he hung up the phone. Whoa. And the pastor is, like, in the room, you know what I mean? Um, who, the, uh, yeah. I, he actually is fairly liberal too, but, uh, you know, just to swear in front of the pastor. Um, and that's my religious background, as you know. Uh, I, was, I was raised Calvinist, which is, like, uh, definitely, like, the most fatalistic uh, branch of Christianity. Um, and also why my family has, like, a bunch of weird, like, Dutch traditions that we do, even though no one in the family is Dutch. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Something I did want to ask you about um, is, you know, you're talking about that self-deprecating humor. Um, something I have noticed, like, anecdotally, and I'll get into one of these anecdotes later, is how often um, self-deprecating humor or humor um, is used to kind of, like, disarm anti-Semitism. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, like, there's this clip that um, I'm sure will get taken down fairly soon uh, of Stone Cold Steve Austin and he's interviewing Paul Heyman who is a Jewish man and you know if you want to talk there's actually a really cool academic article that everyone can look at uh, that just like talks about how Paul Heyman you know uh, was really the first person to kind of like subvert this uh, kind of like Jewish ethno stereotype that exists in, in wrestling um, and anyway, Stone Cold Steve Austin was interviewing him on his podcast. And uh, Paul was, like, sharing, you know, a lot of insights about his experience, you know, as a Jewish person and how he felt like it led to him, you know, becoming a manager in wrestling. Um, and then just, like, super randomly, Stone Cold just, like, asked him if uh, Jews really control the media. And... <laughs> Uh, he, he, Hang out with us. I, I'm a Jew, and my people, we're not hunters, we're furriers. You know? I mean, right, you see, the whole crew's laughing now about that, especially the guy over there who's Jewish, because he knows. Because, you know, it's like, I can't kill the thing, but I can make you a nice lapel yeah, out of it. Why don't you get into diamonds as well? How y'all in, as you, as you would say, I, diamonds, the furs, a movie business? What's the deal here? It's a monopoly? 
What? 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 We're people. I, I, my, my people. Yeah. What? Well, we, well, we own everything. I know. Well, how is that? Well, well because uh, we, we, well, we're the smart people. We're, we're the Jews. You know, I mean, we, we screwed up in the Middle East. You know, I mean, and we did. I mean, I, and I can I can speak about this because I mean, we're, we're supposed to be the chosen people, and here we, you know, and, and here we pick the only piece of land in the Middle East that has no oil on it. Everything we have is sand and the Mediterranean Sea, which for generations people have been trying to push us out into. You know, every Jewish holiday is the same thing. They tried to kill us and we're still alive. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, something that's caused you a lot of pain and adversity, but like just the fact that people can't be so thoughtless. You no, know, it's insanity. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And yeah, that's exactly why uh, Yeah, I'm not going to be watching WrestleMania this year. Um, and it's really disappointing because I think I told you, you know, that there was a wrestler that was going to debut in AEW and all these anti-Semitic conspiracy theory stuff like pop right. and immediately was yanked off the show where it's like, you know, this clip of Stone Cold asking, you know, Paul Heyman, like, do Jews control the media? <laughs> and he's, you know, main eventing WrestleMania on a huge payday, you know? Um, well, he's not main eventing, but he'll, yeah, he's going to be hosting a talk show, or he's going to make an appearance on another wrestler's talk show. Uh, okay. But regardless, like, to have someone with that track record, uh, to say nothing of, like, you know, Google Stone Cold Steve Austin domestic abuse, like, there's already reasons to not be super stoked on watching Stone Cold Steve Austin, right. as much as I love the character Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know what I mean? Sure. Um, it's like uh, there's there's it just in my mind no place for it you know yeah but I mean this is the same company and you and I haven't talked about this stuff at all but uh, the is essentially like uh, being bankrolled by all this like Saudi blood money um, oh my god yeah to where uh, and you know my listeners know there's a podcast called WrestleNomics that goes into this a lot better than I can but Essentially, if you look at the life of AEW's television deal with uh, the Turner Networks, um, they will make less money from their entire, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a five-year TV deal uh, than the WWE has made running, like, two shows in Saudi Arabia a year. Um, it's a really crazy thing. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, and it's disgusting. But in, in, any, in any case... Uh, speaking of, you know, speaking the truth and authenticity, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit just about CM Punk, you know, because he was involved in this feud and is someone that it's like another person that I feel like you have a unique appreciation for. Right. Um, and I talked with this. I talked about this on the show, uh, you know, earlier this this week. But it's just the idea that the thing that makes CM Punk great uh, is when he is in like pursuit of the truth or in pursuit of authenticity. Um, and I think that that's always something that like you and I have had in common. Sure. Um, because, and I'm sure you've encountered this too. You know, anytime you're working. Uh, in any art form, you know, music, wrestling, what have you, um, uh, there's always going to be people who, um, you know, it's back to this Bruce Springsteen quote that I've talked to you about, you know, probably thousands of times, um, you know, where it's like, 
you know, I don't want to be the most popular. I don't want to be the most famous. Like, I want to be the best. Um, yeah, that's a great and quote. That's exactly, you know, CM Punk's thing. That's exactly, uh, you know, your thing. I just feel like, especially nowadays, Mel, no. <laughs> it, uh, it really is so rare uh, to find people that put value on, like, truth and authenticity and being real. Um, because, uh, and that's why I'm really excited that you're putting that song Play Dumb on the record. Uh, because oh, I really thanks. do think it, like, perfectly encapsulates this dynamic of yeah. uh, everyone does want you to play dumb to a certain extent. Well, not everyone, but uh, most people, you know, they don't want to be disturbed. Um, sure. And that's what I found with, like, a lot of this... These, these issues that I've had, you know, with WWE or what have you, um, people want to just, like, sit back and enjoy, you know? They don't want to be bothered by, uh, you know, hearing about, like, what's what's going on in Saudi Arabia and things like that. Um, yeah. So, this is the craziest thing. I, I'm just, I'm glad I'm talking to you about it because uh, I usually talk to people that, like, know about all this stuff, you know what I mean? Um they actually like the last pay-per-view that they did in Saudi Arabia was called Elimination Chamber. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it's yeah, it's like did they leave like the chamber behind for them to like put journalists in? Oh my gosh. Like and it's one of those things where like the way that they or many WWE fans explain away, including Vince himself, is just going to that like cultural relativism thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like no one is criticizing the fact that, like, um, you know, when the wrestlers wrestle over there, it's like the female wrestlers have to wear, like, gigantic black T-shirts and stuff like that. Um, no one is right. saying that they shouldn't be doing that. It's just there's a big difference between, um, you know, all the women wrestlers having to, like, cover themselves up and, you know, beheading journalists. Uh, where I think cultural relativism is good, you know, and can... Um, uh, it is definitely something that can explain away a lot of things, uh, but I, there are just things that obviously cross a line. Um, yeah, so that's my brave stance against beheading journalists. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not afraid to take a stand on the top on the topic of the day. Yeah, that was a really disturbing. Uh, I feel like was that did that happen like right before the pandemic? Um, they did run some shows right i i believe it was actually no no i mean uh, i guess i mean like the the first big publicized uh case of the i guess beheading oh Uh, yes exactly yeah yeah. well and that's what their whole i mean that's what a lot of this stuff is is saudi arabia trying to put like a good public face on yeah it was just wild and that's why there's all this stuff where the WWE made a bunch of women that worked for them all post this billboard that had two, you know, women wrestlers on it because they were, you know, one of the headlining matches in the pay-per-view. And the WWE forced, obviously, all like a bunch of their female employees to post a picture of this billboard with the caption, WWE continues to change the world. Oh my God. Like, is this not like... You know, like, I'm not a, uh, I'm trying to think of the best word for it, but, 
Like, I mean, you know me, man. I just like post pictures of shit on Amazon on my Instagram. You know, like I'm not like uh, I'm not someone that like, you know, is anti, you know, all corporations or whatever. For sure. Although I am on some level, I suppose. But uh, I'm just saying, like, I don't think that all corporations are evil. I just in particular think that this this actually is one of the evil ones. (laughs) Right. And that's why it was so funny, you know, I talked about this too a little bit, is just like that Ringer partnership where it's like the Ringer partnered with Spotify and WWE. Yeah, it's kind of like like really those are the two corporations that your your podcast is gonna be like bankrolled by. Yeah, um, like Raytheon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <Lockheed Martin. laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now that's something that you should look into, like a, a Lockheed Martin. Um, yeah, like a like Jingle. maybe like they could probably use it. <laughs> thing. Yeah, like maybe something a little Beatlesque. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, like yeah. nostalgic. Yes, uh, I should maybe look into that. Um, yep. There was something I was gonna say. Uh, yeah, I, I think that the I just I maybe wanted to clarify something I said, which is I think that just to really answer your question head on about like a lack of allyship, I just think it's it's. Uh, difficult for people who aren't Jewish to empathize with the quote-unquote Jewish plight. Um, And so I think that that's why um, you really have to kind of like explain to a lot of people like what the situation is. And then maybe after like 30 minutes, I feel like they can be like, oh, okay, like that sounds pretty bad, you know? And like, sure. obviously you like learn about the Holocaust and like you read like a diary of Anne Frank and stuff in elementary school or middle school. Um, but it's just like, uh, I don't know. There's just, um, it's a, it feels like there's, there's just kind of a very superficial awareness of like, right. uh, you know, Jewishness and especially like American Jewish. Like, yeah, right. It's easy for every, it's just like me being like, I really didn't, that beheading thing, you guys went too far (laughs) where it's like, everybody wants to be like Nazis. But like, when it comes to actually like, you know, taking a stand for someone in your own community, you know, that's a much different proposition. For sure. And I I think that's something maybe, something else we could kind of talk about is like the, the Nazi thing i mean maybe i don't know maybe we shouldn't talk about this i don't know uh, uh, i just i think that um, yeah it's interesting how like nazis have become kind of like a catch-all for like bad people or whatever when it really um like uh suggests a specific uh hateful ideology you know and like i think that there are times where i'll see like uh, you know, like fuck Nazis patches or whatever, and it'll be like a swastika with a line through it. And I think that as somebody, I think that that's just like another kind of um, like its own type of obliviousness about like Jewishness. I think that's something you see a lot in the Pacific Northwest because it's like a Jew doesn't really want to see a swastika in any context. Like if I pass a, yeah. if I pass like a bar, like there's a bar in Portland with like a uh, swastika with a line through it, like on their front door. And it's like, there is just something really kind of like visceral about seeing a swastika, like on a door in like a public space. Um, 
and it's like I in my opinion you have to be kind of like a dipshit to not understand that but I think that I think that that really kind of like um, captures like the uh, I guess you could call it like tone deafness um, of like people um, like Goyam, I guess. Uh, but but also my experience is like in Portland mainly. You know, I think that it's like pretty different in other places I've been. Um, but because I grew up here, that's like my my perspective. Um, well, I think if you stop and think too, you know, thinking about, um, uh, yeah, I mean, Portland is obviously going to be, you know, different than you know, like you're saying, you know, LA or cities on the East Coast. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, there's probably a lot of other regions of the country where it's probably a pretty similar experience, I would imagine. Yeah, totally. It's really interesting because, you know, I live just down the street from, like, the big Jewish community. Totally. Center here. The community center, yeah. Yeah, in southwest Portland, you know. Um, especially, you know, before they built that, because they built that section of the 405, like, that basically just, like, demolished, like, the oldest Jewish neighborhood in Portland. Um, that's like, yeah, if you look at the history of the Portland, and especially Portland, but the Oregon freeway system, it's basically like, oh, okay, so we're going to build this freeway through the uh, black neighborhood? Or the yeah, totally. Um, and um, which is crazy to look back on, you know, there's that freeway that was going to be built that was like, why am I talking so much about old freeways in Portland. Uh, I, you know what's weird is that that is also my like borderline autistic interest. Uh, I think we may have like both come to this organically and like in, independent from each other, which is really bizarre because I have really I have also been like reading a lot about freeways and before you even said anything, I knew you were going to start talking about like the ghost freeways in Portland. Is that what you're going to mention? So yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know who it's more embarrassing for. Long, like, YouTube deep dives. Yeah. This guy that has all these, like, uh, and I don't know why, but, like, he's got, like, all these, and he doesn't even seem to be based in Oregon, but he has all these videos, like, explaining, like, like you're saying, the ghost freeway. <laughs> I wonder if we're watching the same guy. I think we probably are. Yeah. Because how many of these guys are there? It's honestly a little terrifying. <laughs> It's really a miracle <laughs> Like, I have two kids, Mo. That means I got laid twice, you know. <laughs> it's really pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. That's why I have the two kids, you know. I had to, <laughs> I had to prove this one. Yeah, the, the freeway thing is just crazy. Is, is this the same channel where the guy is, is he goes to, uh, like, the ruins of Vanport? Yes! Okay, yeah. Yes! Yeah, that shit is crazy, where he's, like, standing on the, it's like the foundation of the movie theater in Vanport or whatever. Totally. Yeah, that is, I mean, I think also, like, it's probably because we both grew up here, and that stuff, like, is probably, I don't know, I think you, like, reach a certain age where you, like, want to know about, I don't know. I feel like it's, like, maybe not that strange to have, like, some interest in Portland history or whatever. Well, especially, um, 